Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. I'd like to welcome to the podcast today, Anne Liguri, who's one of America's leading sports journalists. She's been, I think her main claim to fame is how long in London that she's been doing this. She's interviewed some of the uh, great baseball players from the early eras, people like Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris from our perspective today. She's also a golfer herself and she covers golf for different uh, menus, most notably here on the East End, WFAN and also uh, WLIW. I want to start off by asking you how you got interested in covering sports. What, where were you born and raised and how did you get in touch with sports in the first place? Well, first of all, it's great to see you, Dan. You're such a legend and it's always great to talk to you. I grew up in Ohio. I'm a Midwestern girl and it was a small town called Brexville outside of Cleveland and um, had an older brother who was very involved in sports. So everything he did athletic wise, I did. And I just loved it. I would be the first one picked on the teams because, you know, that point I could run faster than all the guys. And I played every sport imaginable. Everybody would come to our backyard after school. And then in high school, I played four sports every year and I earned 16 letters. And I just liked the variety of sports. I was always a naturally gifted athlete and um, just always liked being active. Were you called in that era a tomboy? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Or a jock. Jockette, I prefer. <laughs> so yeah, I just loved it. I, you know, in the fall, I played uh, volleyball. In the winter, basketball. And in the spring, I, I went from running sprints and doing the long jump for, for the girls track team to playing on the boys tennis team. Because when I was in high school, we did not have a girls tennis team back then. So I, I was able to compete on the boys team. And when I was a senior, I played number one singles on the guys team. So Yeah, I think it taught me a lot about just competing, you know, with and against guys. And it taught me a lot that I basically have taken into my my world of sports broadcasting and into my business life as well. Because since I've been involved as a broadcaster, it's, you know, the field has really been dominated by guys. And I feel very comfortable with guys because I've always, you know, competed with with, uh, guys on the golf course or on the tennis court. So it was kind of like a natural transition. What was your first uh, re- sports reporting gig? Oh, gosh. Even when, even when I was in high school, I used to be the public address announcer for the boys basketball team. But professionally, I uh, my first job um, was at CBS Sports. I had come up to Manhattan out of uh, my University of South Florida a days and it was with a international radio and tv society fellowship and it brought about 20 graduates to manhattan and um it was a great place to basically start i i never left i came to new york right out of college and 
my first job with that fellowship was with CBS Sports. We had interviews with all the movers and shakers in the industry, and I was just so impressed with everything CBS Sports was doing from the Masters to, you know, NFL football, all the games. And, you know, at that point, you know, they had the rights to the Olympics. And I was so impressed. That's I knew right away that's what I wanted to do, to stay in sports broadcasting and, and really pursue that as a career. So, but my very first uh, professional job was at ABC Radio Sports. If you can believe it, it was a huge job for a, a, a kid right out of. Yeah, I would think so. And guess who was working there at the time, Dan? None other than Howard Cosell. Oh, wow, that's great. <laughs> so what happened, I was on the job for the first week. And, you know, I was a freelancer because at that point, I wasn't full-time anywhere. I was freelancing, writing for USA Today, the sports page. And I was hired as a, a freelance producer at ABC Radio Sports Network. And so I had just started uh, my ABC radio sports gig and Howard Cosell did a commentary in the morning that was to be repeated that afternoon. And he made a mistake. It's been a long time, so I can't remember exactly what the mistake was, but he said something that was not completely accurate in his commentary. And it was going to go out again in the afternoon. It was going to be repeated in the afternoon. And as the producer uh, at that point, it was my responsibility to get it ready to go out again, to be distributed to all the ABC affiliates in the afternoon. So I heard the mistake and I, I told the engineer, I said, we have to call Howard and let him know that he made this mistake and to just to redo that one line in the commentary. And the engineer looked at me like I, you know, had three heads, like, Nobody calls Howard Cosell at home. Are you kidding me? Certainly not you who just started. He doesn't even know you, which was true. But I found his number somewhere and uh, I dialed him myself and much to the dismay of the radio engineer, he picks up the phone, Howard. He was at home. He had a studio in his house. And when I told him about the mistake, there was this long pause. And he said, do you know who I am, young lady? This is Howard Cosell. I don't make mistakes. Well, I thought my career was over. You know, I was in my early 20s and I just figured, what else do I say at this point? He didn't even know who I was. And he said, I said, good. that was good. He didn't know who you were. I know. I said, I said, Mr. Cosell, you're normally flawless. You are normally perfect. So if you just redo this one line, it will be absolutely perfect and everybody will be very happy. And so he did it. He was grumbling the whole time, but he redid, he redid the line. We edited it in the radio commentary and it was uh, perfect, but he never forgot my name after that, Dad. And, you know, I, I think he did respect me and we, we had wonderful conversations after that when I would see him coming into, you know, ABC, but you know, when, he came to, to work at ABC. People shook in their shoes. They were so intimidated by him. Yeah. Back then, yeah. there weren't that many commentators in sports. There were only, what, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox, right? Right. ESPN, no, not Fox. Not Fox. Not Fox. ESPN was uh, just starting. So yeah, Fox wasn't around then, well, back when you're talking about Yeah, maybe there were just four networks, right? So um, he was one of the big guys. And uh, I, I just think, you know, as a young person, I think sports gave me a lot of confidence. My athletic career as an amateur 
somebody interested in a variety of sports and somebody who was able to compete, you know, in high school and, and in college. I think that really helped me in the business world and in my sports broadcasting career. And I figured, hey, if I'm the producer, it has to be perfect. So he was amazing to work with. He could do a commentary for 60 seconds and not look at a stopwatch. He just knew when to finish. Wow. He was such a great orator. He was. He was. And also just on the borderline of annoying. <laughs> Very annoying, right? But uh, um, you've done you've done a lot of traveling for sports. They send you off to uh, Timbuktu and Kalamazoo or wherever. What, where where is the most interesting place that comes to mind that you've been and what did you cover there? That's a great question because you know I love covering the Olympics. I love covering golf. I've been all over the world not only to to, to play golf but to cover golf. But you know, I was thinking with the Olympics happening, I was thinking about all the Olympics I've covered. And, you know, I loved going to you know, Nagano, Japan, where I basically covered Alpine. These are winter Olympics. I've, I've covered some summer games, but mostly I was the broadcaster for Alpine. And uh, in Nagano, I was up in the middle of nowhere on a mountain, staying in a in a and b owned by a Japanese family that spoke no English. They had no television with American news on it. Talk about being completely isolated. But the mountain was uh, only about 20 minutes away. And that's where, you know, a lot of these top skiers performed. And Herman Meyer, the, they used to call him the Hermanator, the great Austrian skier. I was uh, doing play-by-play -play of his uh, downhill run when he wiped out. And nobody thought he would live. He went wide on a gate, smashed into a, a fence and, and landed in knee-deep powder, thank God, or else he would have, wouldn't be alive today. And later that day at the press conference, somebody asked him, so what happened with your fall? And in a thick Austrian accent, Herman Meyer said, I flew 30 feet in the air. It was a good flight, but it was not as good as Lufthansa. <laughs> so, so he made a joke about it. And then he went out and won the gold the next day. So um, just traveling all over, you know, it's hard to just pinpoint just one place because I've had the opportunity to, you know, go to South Africa on a uh, golf, wine and safari trip. Yeah. And I love Ireland. You know, Ireland has some of the most incredible golf courses in the world. Just when you think you've seen the most beautiful links course on the ocean you go 10 minutes down the road and there's another incredible links course so and and our country dan we have some amazing places right in our own country i just got back from idaho and coeur d'alene resort and then uh the uh this golf course called um uh, circling raven and, and it was just uh you know i loved going to bandon dunes and oregon and you know, Pebble Beach. I mean, golf is normally when you go to play golf and you go to cover these events, they're normally in the most gorgeous spots on the planet. That's why they build these golf courses. Playing golf and covering golf takes you to some pretty incredible spots. Yeah, the uh, the Montauk course out here in the Hamptons. Is Montauk really Downs. Probably uh, the best, one of the 10 best public courses in America. Yeah, and that right here on the east end of Long Island. I mean, you said Montauk. We have, you know, so many great golf courses from Shinnecock that's hosts so many U.S. Opens and 
Sabonic and National and uh, Maidstone, where I have my Tour de Golf event oh, coming yeah. up in September. Just beautiful that, golf courses. What's that hole where you you hit the, the, the fairway is right in back of the dunes and you can hit the bathers if you slice? <laughs> where at Maidstone? Yeah. Oh my God, which one, what number is it? Now you're testing me. There's so many great holes there. And then there's that par three right on the, on the ocean, right in the, that might be it. I think it's number eight. Just beautiful golf everywhere. We're blessed to be out here and, you know, it's our own backyard. I, I played in three member guests in the last six days and in the whole New York metropolitan area, we're, we're blessed with great golf courses, but particularly out here on the East end of Long Island. Have you ever interviewed um, Tiger Woods? Yes, many times. I covered every major championship that Tiger won. So if you think about it, he's changed himself dramatically over the years from the uh, 18-year-old who played Shinnecock all those years ago as a first professional game, I think. He had to resign it because he pulled an arm, his shoulder, whatever. But I thought it might be reflected in how his demeanor and how he goes to an interview. Have you have you, were you able to see any changes? And if you have, can you describe what you saw? Because he's extraordinary. Absolutely, Dan. That's a very good point. He's the greatest golfer ever, right? Greatest golfer of all time. Some people might disagree, thinking Jack Nicholas is the GOAT. But um, I definitely haven't covered Tiger from the very early part of his professional career. And even today, you know, with that car accident, he's uh, got seriously injured. So... He's, you know, not playing. He's just hoping that he can walk normal again at this point. But I definitely saw a huge transition in his personality and how now he makes himself more available to fans and spectators. He signs autographs now. He's He has a lot of friends on the tour. Justin Thomas and, and Tiger are very good friends. Justin's always texting him to ask how he's doing and Ricky Fowler. And there's this whole kind of professional golf contingency who live down in, in Jupiter, Florida, where Tiger lives. And they're all very tight now. Tiger's matured a lot. He, he's been through a lot, uh, all that controversy that he basically initiated. And then again, all the, the injury and all the, um, you know, he, all the pain. I mean, he, he took a lot of painkillers and he, uh, you know, he had a, a problem and he sought help for it. And um, when he came back, he seemed like he was a whole different guy. And then when he was healthy enough to play and then won the Masters. I know, that was amazing. That was amazing. And what was so special about it for him, aside from winning again after everything he'd, he'd been through with, you know, the controversy in his personal life and then the injuries that he suffered and you know the back pain and the, just the tremendous pain he was enduring as an as a person but what was amazing is his kids were old enough to see him win for the first time and they were there at Augusta National to watch him and I think that's why we have seen a nicer more mature Tiger Woods because he, he's trying to be a great dad and he knows that his kids can go online and read about the scandals and all the the negative things that happened to him at one point. Well, in, in when life. he first started, was he so focused as to be fairly inaccessible? Is that what you're Yes, completely that? inaccessible and not that friendly. He just was had tunnel vision, which is great, but he really, you know, you hear a lot of bad negative stories and 
he wasn't friendly with anybody and he was hard to like. He never would give interviews to the media and he would never make himself accessible. And he's a really fun guy. He has a great personality. And now as, you know, obviously with all the wins now and, and his career, pretty much his professional golf career behind him, um, you know, he, he became, he got to a point where he could be himself and he showed that side of him, which is nice. It's great to see, look, you always root for people, right? You, you root for their recovery, you root for positivity. And that's what we have seen with Tiger Woods. Now you've uh, accumulated over the years, hundreds of interviews. You have them in, in uh, a safe place, I presume. And uh, it's quite a, a collection. Early on, you said you had told me earlier that you had interviewed uh, uh, Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris. Are they are are they there? Are they in that collection? Yeah, I never I never interviewed Roger Maris. Roger had passed away a while ago. Um, I I have over five hundred of these half hour TV interviews, and my very first TV interview was with Mickey Mantle back in nineteen eighty nine. And I did something that I, I, you know, when I look back on it, I was quite brilliant, I guess, but I, ha I was forced to do it because I maintained the rights to all the interviews because I went out and brought in my own sponsors for the show. Yeah. MS MSG Network said, Ann, we like your work. We can give you a time slot, but we can't pay you. <laughs> so I had to figure out a way to get the show on the air. So I went out and brought in, you know, my own sponsors. And 17 years later, the show is still going strong. It's called Sports Interview. But yeah, Mickey Mantle was my first guest. And he did get very teary-eyed when he talked about his late friend, Roger Maris, because when he played, they were going after the same baseball records and, and the media kind of pitted them against each other as they were, as if they were intense rivals. But just the opposite, they really liked loved each other as friends and when roger got sick and was in the hospital mickey was telling me how he'd go and visit him every day and we were at mickey mantle's restaurant in manhattan for the interview and uh we were in a booth and and mickey said this is the rob roger maris booth and he grabbed a ball from the wall and he, he showed me the ball and it said to mick my best friend love rog yeah. And he it, it, he got teary-eyed when he was telling that story because, uh, you know, Mickey was such a great storyteller and he, he was quite sentimental in his older years. You know, I was just a kid. I was in my 20s when I did many of these interviews and I would interview these legends that were, you know, well into their 60s or 70s, right? And they were so thrilled to kind of just tell their stories and and share their their success stories with me, which I so greatly appreciate. They were much older and so willing to talk. I didn't have to pay them. <laughs> I didn't have to go through a million agents just to get the interviews. They all were pretty, I mean, I worked hard to find the right people to talk to them, to connect to them, to get them on the show. But, you know, nowadays, I don't think the kind of show I did could be possible to get all the top sports legends. I mean, I'd have to work really hard, but a lot of the agents just say no. <laughs> but back then they wanted to share their stories. So Wilt Chamberlain, Jim Brown, um, Gordy Howell, um, Ted Williams. That's what one was, of my favorite interviews. What was his, what was he like? Ted Williams. Well, you know, 
he had a love hate relationship with the Boston baseball fan base. But when I interviewed him, he was older, much older, uh, I guess late seventies, maybe early eighties. And he wasn't well. And his son, John Henry, and, and he got connected again. They were for many years, they hadn't seen each other, but John Henry came into his life and was taking care of him. So I was actually playing golf in Florida and I, I had learned that John Henry lived nearby this golf course, Black Diamond. So I thought, gosh, I need to interview Ted Williams. If it's the last thing I do, I have to get an interview with the great Ted Williams. So I went to John Henry's house, knocked on his door. He wasn't there, but his wife answered. I introduced myself and I said, please give your husband my name and number. If his father, Ted Williams, is ever available for an interview, I would love to sit down with him. And I got a phone call a couple of days later from John Henry, who was in his, I think, late 20s at the time. And he said, listen, my dad's going to be back in Boston for the All-Star game at Fenway. And uh, why don't you come up with your camera crew then? And I will make sure that he will sit down and talk to you after his nap. He'll be sharp. And he'll be, you know, because he wasn't, he wasn't really well then. Yeah. And, um, and that's exactly what happened. I, I went up to Boston set up my camera crew in the hotel and Ted came out and he gave me 45 minutes of incredible material. And he was so pleasant and he was so appreciative that he was still around and could go back. I'm sure you remember the footage. He was at Fenway, you know, riding around in the golf cart and, you know, waving to everybody and he got a standing ovation and he came back just a totally transformed you know, person, because he, he was saying how much he appreciated everybody. And, and he, he admitted that he was irritable and had somewhat of a, a love-hate relationship with, you know, the Boston media and the Boston fans back when he played. But he came back as lovable and as humble as ever. And he was a baseball genius, really. And I just so enjoyed every second of that time that I spent with, you know, talking with Ted what do you What do you mean a genius? How do you mean that? Well, he just knew so much about the game, oh, you oh. know, about the, you know, just about the science of the game. You know, he, he, he could look at a baseball, a younger player, and within a minute or two know that that, whether that player was going to be a superstar or not, you know, and he could, he, he, somebody said that his eyes were so incredibly sharp that he could see the rotation of the ball yeah. coming to him before, you know, he hit the ball. And he just knew the fundamentals and and just knew, he had the great in baseball instincts, right? I mean, you don't get, you know, that legendary and, and compile, you know, the records that he compiled without having some kind of genius, right? Did, you, like, ever, did you ever interview Carl Yastrzemski? No, I did not. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could have, but I haven't, no. Yeah, he's he was, for those that don't know, he was... Uh, one of the great Boston Red Sox players who grew up on a farm in Bridgehampton it's from from out here. And his the nephew, also named Yastrzemski, is currently playing for the San Francisco Giants. He's not the star that Yaz was, but he's, he's carrying the torch, I guess. I love that. Yes. Well, thank you very much for this interview. I, I've enjoyed it. Why are you on a boat? That's my last question. <laughs> 
Well, we just enjoy being on the boat. You know, look, the Hamptons has some of the most amazing waterways on the in the country, right? It's so beautiful. The Hamptons is so beautiful by land, but by by water, it's gorgeous as well. So yeah. we're spending some time this summer on the boat, and uh, we just love it. So here we are, and uh, I know I I think it looks okay, right? Yeah, it looks fine. The zoom is like a miracle. You can do zoom from anywhere. It's just hopefully the lighting's good. I have to kind of no, figure out the right angle. You look just fine. <laughs> and uh, I'll see you at the artist writers softball. Oh game. yes, you will. What position did you play when you played, or have you most recently played? Well, you know, I they normally put me in. Ken, our, our fearless manager, Oletta, normally puts me in as a pinch runner. I used to play softball when I was a kid. I haven't really played much uh, lately because I'm so busy playing golf and tennis and swimming and all the other stuff, biking. But I normally pinch run because I can run and uh, I I can hit. So he normally puts me in a hit, but. You know, they have these players, Dan, as you know, who play softball on a regular basis every yeah. weekend. Yeah. So so they put those guys and gals in, which is fine. But as long as I can get in, I, I remember I, you know, I, I every time I go to bat, I seem to connect on the ball. Sometimes you don't, and so, sometimes you miss and sometimes you hit. But I remember one year they put Jimmy Layritz, you know, who used to play with the Yankees yeah. uh, on our writers team. And that was like unbelievable. Everybody was like negotiating who gets Jimmy Layritz. Well, he had just written a book or somebody had just written a book for him. So he became a uh, part of the writer's team. But it's always fun to see some of the ringers that these, uh, you know, the artists and the writers can come up with. I wonder this year who, what are, who our ringers will be. <laughs> well, we have a mascot this year. Oh, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, you know, like Mr. Matt or, you know, the Atlanta... It's a big bird, seven feet high, with a yellow beak and yellow feet, and um, it's a piping plover. Oh, well, that's appropriate for it's our the area. The biggest piping plover we've ever had. They usually come about three inches. I love it. <laughs> I, I see piping plo plovers. They used to be endangered, and they've, you know, they've kind of we've here in the Hamptons have helped protect them, right? So I think that's a very appropriate mascot to yeah, have well, the if, game. Any, if anybody hits a home run he's going to run out on the field and lead a cheer i and love it it's figured out that anyway, is so great so i'll see you there it's august 21 uh saturday afternoon two o'clock and it's uh uh free to get in and it's behind the stop and shop in east hampton and herrick park so i'll see you there and, and you, you are you are so much a big part of that game, Dan. It's you're such a it's so wonderful to see you there year after year, and we can't thank you enough for everything you do uh, well, for that rich that, tradition that, here in the Hamptons. I'm talking to Anne Ligori, and uh, it's been a nice time to have you on the show. Thanks very much. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks sure. so much. Bye.